I always feel at the end of a first night, first full day of a retreat, that we should hand out gold stars or something like that, just for making it through. Hmm. So last night, we talked a bit about the intention that we each bring to the retreat, and we talked quite a bit um, about the fact that many of us come with some degree of suffering or other, and we come wanting to learn more of one of the central teachings of the Buddha about the end of suffering and about freedom. I can remember when I would sit with Stephen Levine some years ago, and he would simply say, stop the war. And all of us have various wars going on in ourselves. Some of us have wars going on outside of ourselves as well. And um, it's good when we can find a way to stop those wars. I always have the feeling when I start a retreat, You know how if you drive out from Spirit Rock and you get to the end of the driveway, for those of you who have ever left here before, maybe some of you who have just come in and you haven't ever left yet, but when you leave, there's a stop sign as you go out. But I kind of feel like there's a stop sign when we come in, too, that uh, we come here in order to stop for a few days. So I wanted to read you something which I recently found which is about how life is for most of us, most of the time. This is from Diana Winston, and she says, I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk. My God, make it all stop. I don't have time, and it's running out, and I'm running fast and furiously, and I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? My God, what's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed, and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I am so tired. Please, somebody, you have got to make me stop. How can I keep keep track of the multitude of information from TV, newspaper, dailies, weeklies, alternative journals, web, email, snail mail, commercial radio, public radio, what my friends say, posters, flyers, billboards, advertisements, magazines, books, bookstore windows, dreams. Here we go, restless, can't stop now, spinning, careening wildly out of control, faster now, faster, got to make that date, got to invent something new, got to go, can't explain now, got to check my website, over here, over there, where, no, it's not fun anymore, on to the next better, newer, happier, yes, this is it, got it, no, it's not quite it, wait, there must be more. Now we can all go home and go to bed, I think. (laughs) Hmm. So I suspect most of you have some sense of kinship with what she writes. I certainly do. So to counter that, I want to consider tonight 
a teaching from one of the great Thai meditation masters, Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he said, there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, and there's no one to be. So basically these are instructions for stopping. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, and no one to be. And Howie, when he gave the walking instructions this morning, said quite clearly to all of you, you're not going anywhere. You're walking back and forth, you're doing laps. You know, when you do your walking, it's very clear that you're not going anywhere when you do walking practice. Even in one day here at a retreat, I suspect most of you have had some sense of your own suffering. You've seen how hard it is to slow down and probably have seen how hard it is to even begin to have the idea that you might stop. And there's been some fear, and there's been some contraction, and there's been some grief, as well as perhaps some sense of peacefulness and expansion and relaxation in being here. After the Buddha had his enlightenment experience, he gave his first teaching. It's called teaching, Turning the Wheel of the Dharma at Sarnath. And it's a teaching that's very familiar to most of us, the teaching that's known as the Four Noble Truths. There have been endless Dharma talks about the Four Noble Truths. This isn't going to be one of them. But it's one of those reflections that probably has enough material in it for several lifetimes worth of Dharma talks and listening to Dharma talks. So he said in these teachings, the first of the Four Noble Truths was the teaching about dukkha, about the unsatisfactoriness of life and of things in life, that there's nothing in life that is fully and totally and permanently satisfactory. Nothing. And in the second of these truths, he says, that our attachment to things being in a particular way, usually different from the way that they are, or if you like the way that they are, then it's an attachment to wanting more of the way they are. Um, And it's this attachment, this wanting more, wanting less, wanting different, is what causes a huge, huge amount of suffering. And then he said in the third truth that there can be an end to suffering. And our friend Sylvia Borstein likes to say there's a third and a half truth, which is you might not come to a complete end of suffering, but it might end some of the time. And I like that. Probably all of you who have been practicing for a while know that that's true, actually, that doing practice has brought some end to suffering. Maybe not all of it yet, but you're getting there. And then the fourth truth is the truth about the way that um, there is a path that we can work with to come to some place of freedom, the path of wise understanding and wise intention and wise speech and wise action and wise livelihood and wise effort and mindfulness and concentration. So a path that involves seeing things clearly, of living our lives carefully and of training the mind. So Buddhadasa gave us these very wise instructions for our practice about 
nothing to do and nowhere to go and no one to be. They're really, I think, instructions on how to stop, how to come, slow down, slow down, and finally stop, and how to find freedom. And I actually think they're wonderful retreat instructions. I've used them a lot in my own practice, sometimes just saying them over to myself, oh, there's, there's nothing to do, or oh, there's nowhere to go, or oh, there's no one that I have to be right now using them almost like a little mantra to remind myself how I can find some release in this particular moment. So, nothing to do. I want to read you a poem from Mary Oliver. I always think of the Spirit Rock Hills when I read this poem. She says, Today is a day like any other, 24 hours a little sunshine, a little rain. Listen, says Ambition, nervously shifting her weight from one boot to another. Why don't you get going? For there I am in the mossy shadows under the trees. And to tell the truth, I don't want to let go of the wrists of idleness. I don't want to sell my life for money. I don't even want to come in out of the rain. So, we are a culture of doers. And if I watch the people around me, and people I know well, and myself, um, I see that we get very little rest. It's a pretty well-known fact these days that many of us don't get enough sleep. There is no more formal Sabbath. We don't keep it as a culture. Most Buddhists I know don't even know about lunar observance days, which is sort of the Buddhist form of Sabbath, let alone make any attempt to keep them, and including myself, I would have to admit. We work very long weeks. We work very long days. I was thinking about this not too long ago when I was visiting with some friends of mine who are people who, like many of us, had children in their 40s, so they're a little old to be parents of young children, and they have the usual highly energetic young children, and they're beginning to get a little tired themselves. And they work long days at work, and then they pick up their kids, and they come home, and they have long, exhausting evenings with their kids, and then the kids finally go to bed. And about the time my husband and I are saying, I think we'll turn in because we stay with them every now and then, they're settling down to their computers to put in another two or three hours before they go to bed. And it makes me tired just just watching them. We just, and this is how many, many people in our world work. 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks. We have an idea that fast is good and faster is better. So the faster we can drive on our roads or the faster your computer works or the faster your printer works. I have a husband who works for Xerox and develops high speed printers. He's been working on one that prints 180 pages a minute. That's three pages a second. That's a very fast printer. Jack asked him once, um, he said, at what point is there an upper limit? And Russell thought about it, and he said, when the paper catches fire. (laughs) (laughs) But until we reach the point at which the paper catches fire, faster is better, and it's more desirable, 
and it will sell for more money. It's very interesting when you start really looking at it, you go, what? Especially after a few days of being here and really slowing down, you begin to wonder about all this fast business. The word vipassana means to see things clearly. And really, in order to see things clearly, we need to slow down and sometimes to stop in order to go deeply into the heart of any particular moment, any particular experience. Now, this business of not doing, it's not about no energy or no effort. It's not about laziness. Nor is it about not working for useful and compassionate change in the world. And in fact, I think when we consider the need, the huge need for our compassionate change in our world, we really begin to see that we need to take time to see any given situation clearly. We need to stop long enough to be with it, to be fully present, to take in the pain and the suffering of the world in a way that we understand it. And then, after we've been present with it, fully present with it, for as long as it takes to be fully present, then we can respond instead of reacting. And we can act, not react, with skill and with wisdom. But mostly we get busy with doing in our lives. There's a lot of doing. And there's a lot of constantly adjusting and fussing and fixing. And as I've given some attention to a lot of that doing, certainly in my own experience, um, what I see is a lot of it's about aversion. I don't like this. It's not quite, it's not quite good enough. It's not quite right if I tweak it a little this way or adjust it a little that way or shine it up a little, it will be better, right? Some of you probably know this place. And as I've thought about it, one of the things that it reminded me of is that rather nasty little habit that most of us don't talk about much, and certainly we don't talk about it much in Dharma talks, which is picking at something. And nobody here in the room besides me, I'm sure, has ever picked at anything. But, you know, if you have a little rough spot on your skin and you start scraping at it, the idea is you're going to make it smooth, right? And it will be shiny, and it will be fine, and it will be better. And so you kind of pick and you scrape, but it doesn't work that way. Because the timing isn't right, it's not ready, the scab isn't, is still doing what scabs are supposed to do, and then you end up with a mess, right? And it's bleeding, and you've hurt yourself instead of taking care of yourself. We've all done it, everybody's done it. And we see, I think, in our lives when we look that a lot of our doing is kind of the same thing. It's picking at our situation to try to make it better. Probably here at the retreat, if you haven't noticed it already, maybe by tomorrow or Saturday, you'll notice that occasionally the mind will get busy kind of picking at the retreat. There might be something about the building that could be a little better, the air conditioning, or your room or the dining hall, or the food, and the mind will spin quite a bit, figuring out how to improve the retreat. 
I noticed the new guidelines for notes say you're not supposed to write notes about that kind of thing. But you might even be tempted to write a note, you know. Dear cooks, the meals would be really much better if only. And then we, we kind of pick and poke and try to fix it. Buddha Dasa says there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do that we can stop all of this. We can let it be. And we know, in fact, that when we do that, it's almost, it's a form of renunciation. Remember that we said that precept last night, um, I undertake the precept of not taking that which is not given. And the flip side of that is that we receive only that which is given. And we don't fuss. That's one of the renunciations of being at a retreat. There's another instruction that I like a lot for practice. Um, And it's on a shine at one of the big monasteries for Westerners in Thailand. And it says, this is the way it is. (laughs) That's all you need. We don't need to give you any more instructions for practice. We could just simply sit here in the instruction sit in the morning and say, this is the way it is. Any given moment, this is the way it is. When we learn to be with things as they are, then when we do act, because we do act, it can be from a much simpler and slower and clearer place. We can be present. You can work with this a bit on your retreat. One thing at a time, not trying to do three or four different things all at once. You can be present here in your body as you do whatever it is that you have to do. Just chopping vegetables, just brushing your teeth, just walking, not chopping and brushing and walking, which is kind of a funny picture if you think about it. One of my favorite old Dharma stories is a story about the old Korean Zen teacher, Sun Sunim, one of whose favorite teachings is this teaching about doing just one thing at a time. And over and over again, he gives that instruction to his students just to do one thing at a time. And one morning, some of his students came into the Zen center, and there he was eating his breakfast and reading the newspaper. And they were a little startled, and they said, but Roshi, you've always said just do one thing at a time. He's a big man. He looked up, he beamed, radiating happiness from every pore, and he said, when you eat and read, eat and read. (laughs) So in the second of these instructions, Buddha Dasa says, there's nowhere to go. No striving to attain anything. No striving to get somewhere. There isn't anywhere to get, but that's maybe beside the point. Any retreat, any retreat in which you have an agenda to get somewhere, whatever that somewhere is, maybe you'd like to be completely finished with a certain piece of grief, 
or you'd really like to start having kind feelings toward your mother-in-law, or maybe you want some level of radiant diamond-like concentration, or maybe even you're hoping you'll get fully enlightened. If you have an agenda, a specific strong agenda, I guarantee you, you will have some suffering because that seems to be how it works. That when we really want to get somewhere, when we create this having to go, then there's also a lot of suffering. And what's interesting is that in many of the mythic stories about great heroes and heroines and their journeys and achieving their goals. You know how the story goes. They start, they go out on their journey, mountains, dragons, oceans, chasms, wars, encounters with various ogres and witches and all of those things, adventure after adventure. And very frequently what happens is they come around full circle and they discover that the treasure was right there all along. In one story I read recently, it was in the hem of the garment that the hero had been wearing all through all of the journey. He just didn't know that it was right there. And Robert this morning in the poem he read said, it's inside your bones, it's right there, you know, just just inside of yourself. In the Tibetan book of Great Liberation, it says one of the instructions is look within your own mind. Don't look out there. There's nowhere to go out there. Look within your own mind. And T.S. Eliot says we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time to know the place for the first time. And Hakuin, a great Zen teacher, says this very place is the lotus land of purity. This very place. Look around. You're in it. This is the lotus land of purity. And this very body, the one that you're sitting in on your cushion or your chair, this very body is the body of the Buddha. So, no place to go. So we can practice this no place to go. You can practice contentment. I've really been loving the word contentment lately. Just things as they are. Just being contented. It doesn't have to change at all. We don't have to get anywhere. We can Look around in this very moment, this very moment, as we're all sitting here and talking together, to see where is the place of freedom in this moment. Not that moment out there, maybe two days later in the retreat, or that moment over there three weeks from now. But this moment, where is freedom now, here? One thing that helps, I think, when we're not going anywhere, is to remember that it's fine to give up. Whenever you find 
that you've created a strong agenda about getting somewhere, it's really okay to give up. If you need permission, we'll all give it to you right now. And so that you can give up, give up often and frequently. We could probably put a big sign, you know, up on the bulletin board. Just let it be what it is. This is the way it is. The lostness, the grief, the places when you feel some freedom, your aching bodies, your heart as it's struggling to open. This is the way it is. This is the place to rest. Getting somewhere is actually probably the wrong question. Ajahn Chah, in a very interesting last letter to his student Ajahn Sumedho, said this. It's quite a koan. He said, The Buddha's Dhamma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This, Sumedho, is your place of non-abiding. The Buddha's Dhamma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This, Sumedho, is your place of non-abiding. So, you can chew on that one. It's really about entering deeply the present moment. I've come to think of it as a a bit, I've been calling it lately in my own mind, the geography of liberation. That there's, it's about the place of liberation in this very moment, in this body, in this place. So here's another poem. Listen up, O trees, you are all the Bodhi tree, offering shelter to those who seek. Listen up, O turkey vultures, you are all deva birds, weaving high webs of protection, eating our deaths. Listen up, O brothers and sisters, monks, nuns, and lay people. Inside each of you lives a Buddha yearning to awaken. So in the last of these instructions, Buddha Dasa tells us that there is no one to be. This business of being someone is very interesting. Each of you is someone. I'm someone. Robert, someone. Howie, someone. And sometimes we put a lot of, you hope. (laughs) You are. (laughs) And sometimes we put a lot of time and energy into being the someone, whoever it is that you are, that it's important to keep on being. I thought about this a lot recently. In June, I was very blessed with the birth of my first grandchild, a little boy whose name is Cameron. And um, I was able to be there, both Russell and I were, when he was born. Watching a birth is the most amazing thing. And I hadn't been at a birth since this baby's mother was born, and of course then I was the mom. 
And um, so seeing this, this being come out of another being, I'm absolutely convinced that if we all watched other beings be born, the world would be a much happier place, I think. So he arrived, and we knew, we knew he was going to be a boy, and we knew his name. But I realized as he emerged that we don't know anything about this being. He comes with a little bit of baggage, all babies do. But there's not much that we know. He hasn't unpacked himself yet. He hasn't unfolded. And so it's all potential. It's all new. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing about Cameron-ness or at least there wasn't four months ago. There is now a little bit. But there wasn't then much that anybody knew, you know. And when we think of what we come with, each one of you with your 30, 40, 50, 60, or more years of stuff that makes up you, it's a lot. Here's a poem about someone coming to a, a Zen Sashin. It's by Virginia Hamilton Adair, and it's called Zazen. She says, When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself, staggering under a large trunk crammed with humiliations bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, even the horse I never had, and the two casseroles left over because no one wanted them at the church supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. You can imagine this person arriving in the middle of our retreat, right? Like we all did. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised my appearance. So that's how it is. We have all of the stuff, all the stories, all the history, all the images, all of the things that we want to be. We have this selfness that we carry around all the time. Now, when people would ask the Buddha questions about the ultimate nature of self, because the teaching about no self is quite central in the Buddha's teachings, he would frequently give some response that basically said, that's the wrong question, it's not a useful question. And he said, it's a bit like if someone shot you with a poisoned arrow. There you are. That's pretty good. The arrow's sticking in you, and the poison is beginning to drip through your system. And you say, I'd like to know where that arrow came from. And I'd like to know what kind of wood it was made out of. And I'd like to know who shot it. Meanwhile, the poison's dripping through your body, right? And the Buddha says, those questions are all very well, but pull out the arrow. You know, you don't need to leave the arrow in you. Those questions won't help to relieve your suffering at a time like that. 
And what he does say very, very clearly over and over again is that any clinging to any identification whatsoever will cause suffering. That it's this business of creating a self that causes the problems. That place where I become central or where it's all about me or where it's mine, you know, that place of mine. Now, I think it's always important when we talk about this business of self to say that we do need a conventional time and space sense of self. You need to know who you are, you need to know where you live, you need to know where your personal boundaries are. And many of us have put in a lot of time and energy um, learning that in the therapy world, in the psychological world. And it's important. What happens is we begin to see that conventional time and space self as being solid, as being rigid, and as being ultimate. When I've spent time in monastic communities, there's a wonderful chant that happens every morning. And it has this kind of, you know, pounding regularity. The body is not self. Feelings are not self. Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. None of these things are self. doesn't leave much, actually. So, what we're saying is that identifying with any of these things will create problems. In the retreat, as we begin to get quiet, probably some of your stories are already circulating through. There may be even a few stories that have circulated through several times today already. And so we think about this or that event in the past and how we said or did whatever we said or did or the other person said or did and how you know, how we were in there, or we think about the retreat and we're worrying a little about how to be the best version of ourselves. I can remember retreats where I would worry about was I wearing the right clothes to be a good yogi. Now, I mean, this is pretty silly, really. You know, but creating a strong sense of self. Or we get really identified with our discomfort. My aching back, my knee, my really sad heart, my grief, whatever. And it can sometimes be a very interesting process just to drop the word my out of there. The grief, the knee, the back, and begin to work with it, with just stepping back from it just a little, little bit by not getting quite so hooked into it, even just with the language. What happens when we do that? Sometimes the form of the practice itself will bring up your sense of selfing. People have so often said, I never sit 45 minutes at home. I'm not a person who sits 45 minutes. Sometimes they'll say, I'm a person who sits an hour every time I sit. Or sometimes they say, I'm a person who sits 25 minutes every time I sit. And so the the length of the sit can begin to create some sense of, but this isn't me, 
I don't do that. Or I don't walk. I'm not a yogi who walks. I don't like to walk. I never walk. Or I don't do that kind of work. Or I can't keep silence. Or the precepts bring up something. And so, you know, maybe I'm a person who always writes. I write three pages in my journal every day. And Mary sat up there last night and said, no writing. Or I always read. And we, it was suggested that we not read. And we begin to see what happens. What happens if I don't write? I remember that on the first retreat when I didn't write. It was like, oh my God, if I don't write, maybe, I don't know what I thought would happen. The world would fall apart. But I was very identified with writing. And it was really a powerful experiment and quite scary to let go of it. Some practices, some Buddhist practices even introduce sort of an extreme kind of form, I think partly to bring that up. So it could be doing a practice, our Tibetan friends do 100,000 prostrations. Or in our tradition, there's a practice in which you don't ever lie down. You always sit up. Now that you might think in a fit of, um, you know, what I call sort of John Wayne mind, that yes, I'll do it. I will not sit down the entire, I will not lie down the whole retreat. Sitter's practice. I may have said it wrong. It's a practice in which you do not ever lie down. So you just sit. Or I will do 100,000 prostrations. I've never done 100,000 prostrations. I've done a few, and I can tell you at 25, that place of rebellion begins to come up about what is this and why am I doing it? I'm not a person who does this kind of practice. And so we begin to see these places, and I invite you to notice them. Notice when you stiffen a little and when you resist, and where the phrase comes up, I am a person who, whatever you then fill in the blank with, I am a person who always does this or who never does that, whatever your version of that phrase is. Because our stories of who we are, the place where we're attached to I am a person who, is what obscures our ability to see clearly. So it's as though what happens when we open that window a little bit? What happens? That at the end of the Zazen poem, she says, the trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. And in another poem, the teacher said, Remove the window of the self. I wonder what happens when there is no window And the breeze of life blows in, sweet, stormy, and fresh. So when we pull that stuff out of the way, I noticed not too long ago, my yoga teacher would say frequently in class, she would say, let go of anything extra. And I began to realize that frequently what was extra in those moments were the places where I was holding on to some story about what I was able or not able to do. 
And if I kind of let go of that, sometimes things would get a little softer or a little less painful. Sometimes I could even do things that I hadn't thought I could do. So we begin to see that this selfing really gets in the way. So the question for our retreat is, can we practice these teachings? Can you take them as a practice? So as you're sitting there, you might say to yourself, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. In this very moment, there's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. That's a wonderful one for walking practice. Just, or maybe you're just sitting out there on the wall in the afternoon sun and you go, oh, nothing to do, nowhere to go, and best of all, no one to be. You don't have to be the doctor. You don't have to be the teacher. You don't have to be mom or dad or your, somebody's partner or boss or employee. You don't have to be anybody. It's a great gift, and it's really yummy. And after a while, we begin to find it's not such a bad place to live, actually. You can live out of this place. Just being. Just being. And notice, as you experiment with these things, that as there's nowhere to go, then we begin a little bit to let go of greed, of having to have whatever. There's nothing to change or to fix, and we develop less hatred for the present moment. And there's no one to be, so we don't create a lot of delusion about the present moment. So it really becomes moments of freedom that we have as we learn to do this practice. So one more poem. Emily, as in Emily Dickinson, once said, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Being nobody, I walk these hills in the morning and soar with the vultures. And in the evening, I open into vast moonlit space. In the moments of no one, the mystery is this, whose heart is so full? So let's breathe together, not do anything or go anywhere or be anyone for a couple of minutes. Just stay just as you are. You don't need to adjust your posture. See, the minute you adjust your posture, there's this story that in order to meditate, you have to be a meditator. Interesting, huh? So just breathe where you are.
So thank you very much for listening. There's walking now until 9 o'clock.